Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Last Sunday, we entered into the new year by starting a series that we've called Salvation Spaces. And what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is walking through terms, words that are connected to our salvation, connected to the life we have in Christ. And we're going to unpack those words by looking at uh, passages from the book of Romans and connecting those passages with an image that can help us get our arms around all that, all that these words mean. We started last week with the word gospel. We looked at the first few verses of this letter of Romans and saw the, the story of the gospel, that it is a story about our King Jesus who left his throne in heaven so that he might come to earth as a servant so that we could join his royal family. If you were here last week, we uh, looked at a couple different passages, but the last few verses we looked at were Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And they say, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in those verses, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. This is Paul's thesis statement, so to speak, for this entire letter. When we look at the story of Jesus, we see the righteousness of God is revealed. That means all sorts of things, but it at least means that when we look at the story of Jesus, we will see more clearly than we will see anywhere else that God always does what is right. God always acts justly, righteously, perfect in every way. This righteousness is available to be experienced by anyone and everyone who might put their faith, their trust, in the message of the gospel, in this story of Jesus leaving his throne so that we could join his royal family. And yet, unfortunately, reality does not always match the ideal. Maybe you made a New Year's resolution a week ago. Uh, that you were sitting in this room maybe last Sunday with high hopes that you were going to do this one thing, you were going to change one behavior, start one thing, drop one thing, and it was going to change everything about your life, and it was going to be great. 2023 was going to be a year for the record books, and now a week has gone by, and it just quite hasn't worked out that way just yet. Uh, maybe, maybe you've fallen off the wagon here and there, haven't done what you said you were going to do every single day, haven't been totally faithful to that resolution. Maybe you have done it every single day and it's just, it hasn't transformed your life just yet like you were hoping it would this time a week ago. The, the, the hopes you had maybe haven't totally worked out. And in the same way, I think the glory of the ideal of all that the gospel is that Paul lines out in the opening of this letter that we looked at last week does not always line up with the reality of what we witness day in and day out in our world. Romans 1, 16 and 17 says the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, it reveals his faithfulness to people, and yet the very next verse, Romans 1, 18, says that the wrath of God is being revealed. Wrath is a term that might sound off-putting, improper to use when speaking of God. I mean, why would we want to talk about something that sounds so negative? Well, Paul continues 
It says the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of humanity. It gets lost a little bit in our English translations, but Paul is setting up a contrast between who God is and who humanity is. A more literal way to translate that word in Romans 1.18, our, our New International Version translates that word as wickedness, but really the literal way to say it would be unrighteousness. When we look at the story of the gospel, we see the righteousness of God revealed, and then when we look at the world around us, and we see how we, how humanity as a whole has rejected God, we see unrighteousness. And when God sees that reality of our world, us rejecting God and unrighteousness, godlessness being the result, it provokes his wrath. And that might sound harsh. We come to church to be inspired, to be encouraged, to sing together, and to talk about the love of God. And those are all good things that we should do. But sometimes we get so focused on those things, we don't want to spend any time dwelling on the fact that sometimes there are things in the world that God is not happy with. Sometimes there are things that make God angry. You might think that's unnecessary, improper unkind to speak of wouldn't it be better to just always dwell on the good news and not think about the bad but the longer i live in this world i think the more it makes sense to me that god would not be happy with what we have done to his creation including ourselves and one another maybe this christmas or a past one you uh, gave a gift to a kid and they did not appreciate it at least as much as you thought they might uh, you, you had high hopes, you thought this was going to be great, they're going to love this, and then they open it, and, and they just don't have as strong a reaction as you were hoping for. Maybe they get more interested in the box than the gift that you've spent all the effort in buying and wrapping and giving to them and everything like that. Or maybe you've given someone a gift and later you find out that they've re-gifted it, given it to someone else, white elephant the next year comes around, and they give this gift that you were so, so set on being for them. And that probably doesn't provoke you to anger right away, but you could imagine how that would maybe disappoint you, maybe give you hurt feelings or something like that, because you had good intentions for this gift, and the person you gave it to rejected it. They didn't appreciate it as much as you would hope. They didn't use it for what you thought it was to be used for. Maybe you could imagine, I hope no one has ever experienced this, but you could imagine if someone opened a gift that you gave them, and as they opened it, they just had a look of disgust on their face. Or maybe they thought, why would I ever, they said, why would I ever want this? They threw it in the trash as soon as they opened it. Now, you're all nice people, so you probably wouldn't start a fight right there on the spot. But you could imagine having hurt feelings. You could imagine maybe being so angry to ask them, do you have any idea what I've done for you? Do you have any idea how much work I've put into that gift? Do you understand that I bought it, that I wrapped it, that I brought it here to you, and you're going to open it and just throw it away right away, not even having any thought at all for how that makes me feel? And that's maybe not a perfect parallel, but I think it helps us to start thinking properly about why the wrath of God would be revealed against our unrighteousness. God created our world out of his goodwill, out of his desire for us to share in his eternal joy. He created humanity as the crown jewel of his creation so that we might enjoy relationship with him. And instead, from the first humans on, we have rejected that invitation. Adam and Eve ate the fruit God told them not to eat because it would lead to their death. They were cast out of God's presence. 
And from then on, the situation has not gotten any better. Humanity has time and time again rejected God's ways, choosing to go our own instead, and the result is brokenness and more brokenness. Compared to the ideal that God desired for us, the reality we live in day in and day out falls woefully short, and that fact provokes God's wrath. When God looks out and sees injustice, when he sees people looking out for themselves instead of others, when he sees abuse, whether it's verbal, physical, emotional, or whatever else it might be, it provokes his wrath. When women and children are belittled and cast aside, it makes him angry. When war breaks out, no matter where it is or how grand of a scale it is on, God is not happy. When innocent lives are taken, God is angry. When systems are put in place to help people and instead they cause more hurt, God does not sit idly by content with the status quo. God is right to be angry. Right to have a problem with us rejecting his ways for our own and hurting ourselves and those around us in the process. My friend Luke that was here and preached last fall has said that God is not interested in just being nice. If nice means letting the poison of sin devastate the people he loves. He's exactly right. This is not anger in the sense of a momentary loss of self-control where God flies off the handle. It is God's opposition to anything and everything that brings death to his creation instead of the life he desires for it. So Paul continues in the book of Romans to describe how humanity has rejected God and what that rejection looks like because the symptoms of that rejection are all around us. I mean, one look at the news headlines is enough to show us that this world is not functioning as it was designed to function. Everywhere we look, we see the result of sin. We see the side effects of humanity rejecting God to go our own way. And we won't take the time to walk through everything that Paul says from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. But if you were to sit down and read through it, my guess is that everyone, no matter who you are, no matter what your experience of God or church has been, no matter what your political leanings are, no matter who you are, my guess is if you sat down to read those verses, there would come at least one point as you read along where you thought, yeah, Paul, you're exactly right. Those people, those people you're talking about right there, they're the problem in the world. If we could deal with them, then all, then all the problems we see on the news and the world, everything around us, that, that would all be fixed. It's just those, you're exact, I'm tracking with you, Paul. You're exactly right. And my guess is there would also come a point as you were reading through there where you would come across something that is maybe Something that sounds a lot like you or things you do or people you know or people you care about you love and you would think well Paul I mean come on I mean that that's a little over the top I mean it, you don't really understand the situation it's a it's a there's circumstances that affect that I mean you lived in a different time and place Paul I mean you 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 need to slow down a little bit there bud yep for the course of these verses Paul stacks this case that is for everyone he walks through the unrighteousness of what you might call the bad people, the obvious sins of the thing. You look out in the world and think, that's what's wrong with this generation. That's what's wrong with this world. And then he turns his attention to those of us who might have thoughts like that. And he points out the ways our unrighteousness shows itself as well. And over the course of these chapters, we get this growing case against all of humanity showing that we have all rejected God we've all gone our own way we've all contributed to the brokenness we find in the world and for that reason no one is able to escape the wrath of God 
we've all done things to provoke it. God is angry with the people that we think he should be angry with, and he is also angry with those that think they're in the clear. He has a case against us all, unfortunately. And so we find ourselves with a problem. We stand before God guilty. We all have sin that must be dealt with if we want our relationship with God to be restored. So how do we deal with this brokenness? Maybe, maybe we think we could fix it. Maybe we think with just enough New Year's resolutions, just enough self-help books, eventually we could grow, we could uh, self-actualize, we could become the kind of person that could earn God's favor and we wouldn't have to worry about sin anymore, but that isn't the case. No amount of trying hard enough will fix the brokenness we find in ourselves. It won't make up for the brokenness in our past. We might think that God should just be able to get over it. I mean, God should be a big boy and just forgive. But, but as Paul has already established in this letter, God is righteous. And part of righteousness means that God is fair and just in all of his judgments as ruler of the universe. To just ignore Sin, wrongdoing, would be unjust. It would be unrighteous. So sin has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with by God. If sin is such a big deal to God that it provokes his wrath, then any solution to our sin must be pretty drastic as well. So maybe if we're tracking along with what Paul, we want to figure out what to do. I mean, this is a big problem. You're right, Paul. What do we do to deal with this problem of sin? Maybe we think, well, we just need to look at what God has said before. Let's go look in the Old Testament law. And if you read through the law, you find that when sin is dealt with, it is done so at great cost. Most of the time, blood is shed. Sin is serious business. It is a rejection of the way of life God has set forth for us, which means that it will eventually lead to death. So if sin is going to be dealt with, there has to be death, there has to be sacrifice, and that sacrifice is done on an altar. An altar where offerings are made, where life is given, where blood is spilled, where sin is dealt with. So the relationship with God might be restored. Something has to be put on that altar, that place where God's anger and our sin meet. And we can come up with some sort of offering to put in our place, or we can pay the price ourselves. But something has to go on the altar. Something has to lose its life. God has made these provisions within his covenant with his people, within the Old Testament law. He, he makes these ways that sin can be dealt with, but they are always temporary. They're never able to fully cover up the problems of sinfulness. They're never able to get to the core of the issue. They're never able to fully transform our heart. So if sin is going to be dealt with, something has to be done about it, and something has to be done about it by God. All this has to happen because of how severe the problem is and because of the righteousness of our God. We have a real problem that really has to be dealt with and it really has to be dealt with in a very specific way. But lucky for us, the book of Romans does not end at Romans 3.20. Because after spending... 
two full chapters or more outlining the problem, Paul makes a little shift in the passage we're going to walk through today. In Romans 3, 21, he makes a shift with two little words, but now. Two little words that have the potential to change everything. Everything about your life, my life, everything about our world as a whole can hinge around those two little words, but now. Let's read our passage. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. The problem was a big one. God made provisions to deal with the problem here and there in the law. I mean, the law could give you sacrifices to make. It could give you rituals to conduct annually that would cleanse your sin for the time being. But there was always another sacrifice that had to be made, always another ritual to be performed. The can was always being kicked just a little further down the road. Last Sunday night, uh, I had to put a new battery in my car. And so as I was working on it, uh, Whitney was holding up her phone, using it as a flashlight so that I could see what I was doing. And she only made me stop once to call my dad and make sure I wasn't about to blow us both up. Uh, but we're both still here, so that's good. And you could imagine that as we were working on that project, if the only tool we had available to us was the flashlight on Whitney's phone, we would probably run into some roadblocks eventually. Like we could be able to see what the problem was, we could see where the problem was located, we could see what probably needed to be done to fix the problem, but that flashlight was never going to do anything to actually fix the problem on its own. And in that way, what Paul is saying in these verses about the Old Testament is that it's a little, the, is that the law, the Old Testament, what God had done before, the sacrifices that were in place, they were a little like that flashlight. Certainly helpful, but will only take you so far. The law pointed to how God could fix the problem of our sin in Jesus, but it was never able to fully fix the problem on its own. And Jesus has come as the culmination of that plan to fix the problem once and for all. Because the solution to the problems of our world, the problems that plague each and every one of us, that plague every nook and cranny of our existence, it comes to us through what Jesus has done. And this is for everyone. Everyone stood before God guilty. No matter how good of a resume they thought they might have amassed, the best we have to offer God is still tainted by sin, still deserving of God's punishment, yet God has sent his son so that we might be made right with him. Because Jesus is how sin is dealt with. If we look around the world and see that things don't function as they should, if we look in our hearts and see that we don't live up to the life we think God would want us to live or the life that we want to live, 
If we look at what others have said and done to us and wonder how that mess could ever be fixed, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is where our sin that was deserving of punishment is dealt with. Because that is true, the problem has been solved. And Paul uses a couple of images there in verse 24 that will show up again later in this series, so I'll just mention them briefly here. First, he says that we have been justified. We have been made right with God because of what Jesus has done. But it is not just a matter of getting a fresh start, a a clean slate. It's a matter of being transformed. And the reason why I say that is because verse 24 comes right after verse 23. I know those are the deep insights you expect from up here, week in and week out. But verse 23 says that, Because we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And now in verse 24, that problem has been solved because God has justified us, has restored us to participate in life with him. Another way of saying it, which Paul adds in verse 24, is to say we have been redeemed from the master that ruled over us. Like the Israelites at the Exodus, like so many former slaves in the Roman Empire, some of whom might be reading this letter that Paul has written to them, we were held in bondage to the power of sin. And Jesus has come to set us free so that we might live with him. We have been made right with God. We have been set free from the life of sin that leads to death so that we might have a life of freedom with our God all because of what Jesus has done for us. And if we're tracking along with Paul at this point, we might feel like he's given us the result without giving us the process. He's told us that Jesus has solved the problem and what that means, but he hasn't told us how that problem has been solved. And Paul makes the turn to explain that in verse 25 with a term that, if I'm being honest, is pretty rare, and for that reason it gets translated in a variety of ways. Uh, The version we've been reading from this morning says that that God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, which, if I'm being honest, is a pretty good translation of that word. But if you're reading from a different translation, it might say that that Jesus was an expiation, or it might say that that, uh, he was put forward as a propitiation, which is the word that I'm supposed to be unpacking up here today, and you might think, those sound like conditions that I've, I think I know someone that had to deal with, but, but they are all words that are trying to cover what it means that Jesus has been our sacrifice. We could go in circles debating which specific term we should use, but I think propitiation, properly understood, is a helpful term to understand what Paul is saying in light of what he said in the last few chapters about all the ways we see sin show up in our world. But before I go there, I want to talk just a second about what that word propitiation means, because my guess is you don't use it on a regular basis. If you do, you use it more than I do. In the word Paul, in the world, excuse me, Paul was a part of, propitiation was what you did to get back in right standing with someone else. So if, if you're sick, maybe you've offended some God and that God is punishing you by making you sick. And so you offer a sacrifice to that God so that you can get back in right relationship with that God so that then you will feel better. Uh, it's something you did to turn away anger. If you've done something to offend someone, my guess is naturally, probably, you will do something to try to smooth things over. Maybe you'll, you'll buy them something to make amends, you'll have a hard conversation with them, you'll, you'll do the thing they were asking you to do so that, so that that relationship can be restored. And in a sense, this is what Jesus does. 
We were deserving of God's wrath, but Jesus died in our place so that we might have that wrath turned away from us. But, and it's so important you get this, if you haven't heard anything to this point, I hope you hear this. Jesus has done so much more than us just trying to get back in someone's good graces. We were talking about something so much more than you cleaning up after yourself because your spouse is mad that you haven't cleaned up after yourself for a month. That is how we might try to go about solving a problem like this, but that is not how our God operates. This is not Jesus going to the cross in our place because God is mad at us and God doesn't really want to forgive us, but Jesus gives him a good speech and so God is eventually persuaded to let us off the hook. Read the beginning of verse 25. Again, if you have your Bible open in front of you, it begins by saying, God presented Christ. God is the one who made the first move. God is the one who has acted so that our sin against him might be dealt with. We are not hiding behind Jesus, hoping that God doesn't realize that we're slipping into heaven on Jesus' coattails. God sends Jesus so that our relationship with him might be made right. Jesus is our propitiation. He is our sin offering. He is our sacrifice. He is the one that goes on that altar on our behalf, dying the death we deserve because of our rebellion against God and dealing with our problem of sin for all time. Jesus comes to die the death that should have been ours, to take the punishment we had earned for ourselves in a way that is different from anything we would have come up with so that we might be saved, so that we might be made right with God, that we might be redeemed out of sin and death and into life and wholeness. Because what Jesus does is different from how we would deal with the problem, that must mean that what he does has so much more in store for us than we might think. If Jesus just came to get God to stop being mad at us, his sacrifice was no different than any of the sacrifices that had come before him. But because Jesus was sent by God, that means his death is not just to wipe our past slate clean, but it is to cleanse us. It is to transform us so that we might be the kind of people God desires us to be, that we might be people who are filled with his spirit, who live in the world as Jesus lived. Jesus has come to make us new, to take the punishment we deserved on our behalf so that in his perfect sacrifice, sin is dealt with. The perfect justice and righteousness of God is demonstrated once and for all. Instead of commanding us to bring offerings to that altar, instead of forcing us up onto the altar ourselves, Jesus gets on the altar. He goes to the cross so that our sin might be dealt with, so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be transformed into what God has always desired us to be. All of this happens as Jesus offers himself with us so that we might have life. And like I said last week, this is just one piece of that much broader story of the gospel, but it is by looking at the death of Jesus on the cross that we can know that God has done what is necessary so that we might be in relationship with him again. This is how we can know that God loves us. This is how we can know that God desires good for us. This is how we can know that God is at work to make us into his people because Jesus has died so that our sin might be dealt with. You might be thinking right now, this sounds like a lot of technical language. This sounds like a lot of hypotheticals. I'm not sure what real difference this makes other than giving me a broader vocabulary. 
I can't answer every question you might have, speak into every situation in this room right now, but to wrap things up this morning, I want to just offer three thoughts that I think speak that I think are spoken into pretty significantly by this passage that can make a big difference. And so the first statement I want to make is if you don't think sin is a big deal, the death of Jesus shows the price that was paid. Sin tends to get overlooked in our culture. I'm sure, I mean, I, I, you would call it sin. I would call it more of a mistake. I, I, you know, it was a one-time thing. I don't make a habit of it. I mean, sure, I did something wrong, but that's not who I am. I mean, really, if you think about it, it wasn't that big a deal. Why does it matter, really? Why are we still talking about it? I mean, no one was hurt, so what's, what's the problem? I know what the Bible says, but I mean, come on. We can move past these things, and we can try to justify that all we want. We can pull out as many statistics as we want to show that, that it doesn't really matter. It's not that big a deal. That does not change the significance of sin. Hearing what God has to say and then doing something different is still a rejection of the life God desires for us. It is still rebellion against our king. It is still an action for which a price has to be paid. The end result of all sin, mine, yours, everyone else's, is still death. And yet that price of death was paid on our behalf by Jesus. Sin is a serious thing that has to be dealt with in serious ways so it makes no sense to play around with it it makes no sense to treat it like it doesn't matter it makes no sense to think we can just do what we want jesus had to die for our sin but the good news is that he did die for our sins and did it gladly so if you don't understand how god could love you it's because jesus died for you if you think you've done too much wandered too far have made too big a mess of your life jesus's death on the cross is the final argument against you if you think there's just too many skeletons in your closet, if you think you've got too much baggage, you don't know how anyone could ever deal with it all, the answer is that Jesus went to the cross. He's done what is needed to deal with whatever it is that you are carrying. You don't have to clean up your own mess first. You don't have to get things together so Jesus can make up the difference. You deserved death. I don't want to brush over that. You deserve death just like the rest of us. But Jesus died for you. And that fact means you don't have to carry that baggage. You can be set free for life with God. He has come to make you new. And the cross stands as the final testimony for all time that nothing we do could ever outrun the love of God. Jesus has died for you. So take hold of life with him. But maybe it's not your sin you're wondering about, the sin of others. I, I don't know the stories of everyone in this room. My guess is there are stories of hurt, stories of people that were supposed to love and care, bringing harm instead, stories of disease and pain, stories of suffering and despair. If you don't understand why something happened to you or to someone you care about, the suffering of Jesus means that God identifies with your pain and overcomes it. You or I will never endure anything in this life greater than the suffering Jesus did on our behalf. Jesus identifies with our suffering. That means we can go through pain, whatever that pain is, and take comfort in the fact that Jesus has gone through the same thing. But he has not just experienced pain. He has come out the other side into resurrection. 
That means that he can both identify with us as we suffer. He can know what we go through. And at the same time, he can offer us the hope that suffering and hurt does not have the last word. Jesus has taken on our pain on himself so that we might be made whole. And if you need to process more what that means, this is a conversation that I'm that I and the leaders of this church are so glad to continue to have, whether it needs to happen before the service ends, out at the Welcome Center before you leave today. Uh, Jesus has dealt with our sin, and that transforms everything about our lives. So my hope and my prayer is that you would experience the healing that is available because of what Jesus has done for us. As we close, let's watch this video. Imagine you stand before an altar, a table shape made from earthen materials, each corner with a sort of horn that reaches to the sky. But there is no beauty here. It reeks of death and is stained of blood. Every element invades the senses, impressing at each moment the gravity of death. A priest stands nearby. He asks for a lamb, you turn to usher that unblemished creature before its end, a great exchange. Here in this event, a substitution is given, a life for a life, the cost of sin, the holiness and justice of God producing a wrath which is propitiated or moved onto the meek and gentle animal. Until tomorrow, another lamb is offered and again, and again, unable to change the one who needs the lamb or to pacify the wrath of the one who asked for it. But then a new priest comes. He does not ask for a lamb. He himself will lay on the table. He himself will propitiate the wrath to move it upon himself. He himself will change the one in need of the lamb and pacify the one who asked for it the great exchange. Here is our substitute, a life for lives, the cost of sin, the holiness and justice of God, our propitiation. Jesus has come to deal with our sin so that we might be made new. So whatever that means for you this morning, I pray that you will step into that and be transformed by the salvation that Christ has brought to us. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That though we did not deserve it, we had done nothing to earn your favor. You sent Christ, you presented Christ as our sacrifice so that we might be made new. God, help us to be transformed by that truth that Christ's death and resurrection would mean new life for each and every one of us. And that we would walk with you in every area of our lives that we would be formed by the cross. Viewing ourselves in light of how you view us, viewing the world around us how you view it, moving out in the world 
and love and service as Christ has done for us. We thank you for Christ's death and resurrection for us. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French. 